we are already in a hypersonic race. And it's a race that we're, we're already losing. The Chinese have already deployed capabilities. We're still in development. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm J.J. Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian. Whether high-end fighters, swarming drones, or hypersonic or precision strike weapons, the former Director of Defense Research and Engineering and a former Air Force Chief Scientist, Dr. Mark Lewis, now with Purdue University, has been deep in the details. He joins us this week to tell us how we can turn the latest technologies into mass-produced hardware critical to deterrence and battlefield success. And we have this week's headlines in air power. And it's all powered by GE. The GE Aerospace XA100 engine is tested and ready to deliver 30% more range, 20% greater acceleration, and twice the cooling to help the U.S. maintain its air power advantage. Learn more at geaerospace.com XA100. And Bell sponsors the Defense and Aerospace Reports daily podcast. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. JJ, what's in the news this week on All Wings Considered? Well, Vago, normally when we do the headlines, I read them and then we discuss them. But you've got some very interesting news to add. Let's get a couple of things out of the way first. One is the B-21 Raider. As it gets closer to reality, we learn more about it. And what we learned at Northrop's quarterly results meeting this week is that they do expect the plane to fly before the end of the year. CEO Kathy Warden said not only will there be first flight, they expect to get the initial production contract before the end of calendar 2023 to start building the Raider in numbers. And India has retired its last Illusion 38 maritime patrol aircraft. Yes, we're going from one end of technology to the other, <laughs> from the B-21 to the four-engined turboprop. India has finally decided that it's time to get modern, and they're going to be flying P-8s to do the maritime patrol role in the future. It is absolutely uh, extraordinary. First, uh, great news on the Raider, knowing that it is entering taxi testing. Uh, so Kathy Warden must know something that uh, gives her a degree of confidence. Uh, and we're really looking forward to that airplane being a success as soon as possible. I also think that it's incredible, right? IL-38 P-8. I mean, that's sort of like going from something steam-powered. Okay, maybe not Star Wars, but good Lord. <laughs> It is going to be a whole new world in India. And by the way, Bago, I happen to be in the Pacific Northwest and was by Boeing Field just today. And there were three brand new P-8s out on the ramp in South Korean colors. So they, too, will be joining the club. It has been a terrific program uh, for Boeing, as well as from a maritime uh, capability uh, standpoint. And, you know, we look forward to more people getting the capability, both in terms of anti-submarine warfare to detect and fight undersea craft, but also to be able to patrol the vast reaches of the Indo-Pacific. Because we've seen time and time again that the Chinese have a tendency of backing off whenever there are assets there that can actually photograph them and document their bad behavior, right? I mean, recently the Chinese Coast Guard, I think, had intercepted the um, Filipino vessels trying to replenish the Sierra Madre and it was the presence of reconnaissance aircraft that could watch them be very aggressive and muscling around a Filipino ship that made the difference. So the more eyes that are up there and looking, the better. 
One other headline before we get to Vago's news on classified programs. The Times of London is reporting that Germany is looking to get out of the SCAF or FCAS program, the future combat air system, and instead of allying with France, go with the British, Swedish, Japanese global combat aircraft program. I'm sure you'll discuss more about that with Ron, Richard, and Sash on Sunday. Vago, you have fresh insights into a couple of classified programs, one of which has received a lot of attention, Next Generation Air Dominance, one that hasn't so much. Let's start with NGAD. Back during the Paris Air Show, we broke some significant news on that program. Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, who appears on the business report on Sundays, discovered that there had been three prototype demonstrators in the program. I was able to uncover that the program had been necked down to two competitors. You were able to get confirmation on both of those items. But I understand there's some new information regarding those two remaining NGAD competitors. Right. I mean, given the nature of these programs, we're all the unsighted person trying to figure out what the <laughs> elephant looks like. It is a little bit of that process that we are in right now. And JJ, after your great reporting in terms of the two that were still uh, in the program, there was a sense that we certainly had on the program that it was Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman that had gone to the next stage. And then shortly thereafter, Northrop Grumman announced that it would not be pursuing NGAD in order to focus uh, on the FAXX program, the Navy's new sixth generation you know, analog to NGAD. Uh, we should point out that some people in the audience might not be aware that actually the FAXX award will happen before NGAD does. And on that program, there are some who think that Northrop Grumman actually you know, might uh, have an advantage over its other competitors, Lockheed Martin and Boeing. In terms of NGAD, it looks like Lockheed Martin's proposal is an evolutionary aircraft bringing in the DNA of the F-22 and certainly the F-35 larger, rangier more capable uh, in order to serve as a platform with more payload and more range, while also bringing a performance component to it. I've heard both from Secretary Kendall as well as Assistant Secretary Hunter that as much as this is going to be an open architecture aircraft, it is going to have the, the combat system and engines and other major systems specified so that the service has an ability to compete subordinate components of this and also make sure that it has as much commonality uh, between the two aircraft. Obviously, Lockheed Martin is looking at maybe a more sustainability edge, which is another important parameter of this. And again, evolutionary, given the tight timeline uh, for NGAD to deliver capability. Mm -hmm. But there are those who also say that the Boeing aircraft has some features. It's a little, for some, fresher, given that Boeing obviously is starting with something that's a cleaner sheet. So there are some who say that, hey, look, the Boeing proposal is really intriguing. And there are some who say that the Air Force favors it. And I would also point out that it was Ted Colbert, the head of Boeing Defense Space and Security, who's made the case, hey, look, don't count us out, right? We are putting it all on the line to win this contract because we understand how important it is. On the other hand, there are past performance challenges with both of the companies that folks that I've spoken to have raised. Uh, they've said that, look, when it comes to Boeing, uh, it is a terrific company and has an enormous amount of capability. And certainly for some, from an industrial-based perspective, would be good to keep Boeing in the game. There are some folks even at Lockheed who concede that that could be a factor in this decision, right? You don't want to put all of your combat aviation or at least fighter aviation eggs in one Lockheed Martin basket. 
On the other hand, you know, they look at Boeing and they say, well, they've had challenges on delivering on KC-46, challenges on the T-7, new challenges on Air Force One, you know, $7 billion in charges on the KC-46 program alone. Whereas there are others who point out to Lockheed Martin and say, look, you know, there have been challenges on that program as well. You know, whether it's the Block 3 airplane that is 16 plus billion dollars over budget, it's delayed. And some other frustrations that senior leadership has expressed about sort of the structure of the F-35 program and the like. So, you know, there are those who say, look, you know, these are two great competitors going head to head. Each one has their advantages. They have common but different challenges, right? At the end of the day, I think there's a sense that Lockheed is delivering on its programs. But, you know, it's it's certainly going to be very interesting to watch where this goes. And again, you know, how FAXX could affect if at all, the outcome of the NGAD competition. And now to the other classified program that you have some information on, something people really haven't been thinking nearly as much about as NGAD and FAXX. It's reconnaissance. That's right. The U.S. Air Force has prided itself on being a service that delivers reconnaissance at scale. I mean, whether from its spaceborne assets, but certainly with its airborne assets as well. And in this case, there were two very important programs. There was a sense that once the Air Force announced that the U-2 was going to go out of service and Lockheed didn't complain very much that Lockheed might have had an edge in terms of the aircraft that will succeed it, that's not the case. It appears that it's Northrop Grumman and obviously the RQ-180 that is the successor to the U-2. And one of the reasons why Northrop Grumman didn't complain about Global Hawk going out of service was that it has the successor to the U-2. And and, uh, folks tell me that one of the reasons why Lockheed may not be complaining as loudly about the U-2 going out of service is the senior Air Force leadership has asked Lockheed to let this go and not fight this decision. Although I will say there are combatant commanders and a lot of people in the ecosystem who want the U-2 to stay around as long as possible because it gives a tremendous amount of capability. There is another program, however, which is for a much more capable reconnaissance aircraft that is the product of the Skunk Works, and it is Lockheed Martin aircraft. There are articles that have already been delivered, but that there have been challenges with that program. There was some speculation that it had been canceled. My understanding is that the program was rescoped because it is uh, that ambitious capability that required a little bit of rescoping in order to be able to get to the next block of aircraft, which I think is uh, interesting, right? Two terrific companies with an enormous amount of capability. And it's really, really exciting to see this kind of capability being delivered uh, and developed and to see what the next generation of capability in terms of the collaborative combat aircraft and Mm -hmm. all of its different guises and how all of these systems are gonna contribute to a better understanding of what adversary capabilities are. As everybody knows, I'm a huge fan of strategic reconnaissance and always have been. Uh, And I'm just very excited to be living in an age where there's so much incredible work going on by uh, so many different people in so many different places at so many great companies. So it's, it's just exciting, even if the picture is not as clear as we would like it to be from the standpoint of reporters. But it's wonderful, too, from an aviation geek point of view, that as the B-21 gets closer and closer to breaking cover and not being as secretive a program, there are still mysterious aircraft out there to look forward to. 
indeed. If you're an airplane lover, this is certainly an interesting time to be around, right? I mean, whether the Global Combat Aircraft Program, where the Brits, the Japanese, and the Italians are developing a new aircraft, whether it's SCAF, whether it's NGAD, whether it's FAXX, it's just really, really exciting time. There is some word coming from Capitol Hill that Dave Alvin might finally get confirmed as the new chief of staff of the United States Air Force. But there is also news regarding the Commandant of the Marine Corps. I, we just wanted to say that General Eric Smith is an outstanding officer, a terrific leader, and a very good man. We're very sorry to hear of his ill health, reporting that he may have suffered a cardiac arrest. He is resting uh, at a leading hospital, and our thoughts go out to him for speedy recovery to you, sir, uh, and look forward to uh, welcoming you back uh, at the Pentagon and on this program at one point uh, or another. Thanks, Vago. Coming up, our interview with Dr. Mark Lewis. And if you like the Air Power podcast, don't miss our other weekly podcasts on the award-winning Defense and Aerospace Report Network. Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company. They clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. And our technology report, where we dive deep into the ones and zeros of cyber, networks, chips, and more. It's hosted by Vago Maradian. Congratulations to Chris, Chris, and Laura for winning 2023 Defense Media Awards. Mark, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure having you on the show, and it's been too long. Vago, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, and also to my friend JJ. So again, thanks for the invitation. And you were U.S. Air Force's uh, chief scientist, uh, and you were the man who also oversaw the hypersonic programs in the department during the last administration, among other things. You know, what are some of the lessons that you're drawing from Russia's war on Ukraine? We're now 22 months into this fight. It is being called the first major drone war with tens of thousands of aircraft involved. Now people have sort of embraced the idea of disposability for these aircraft to the point that some of them are being made out of cardboard for very specific applications. We saw Hamas using drones to take out remote weapon turrets to make their brutal uh, invasion of Israel a possibility. The Ukraine war is being seen as the first fully immersive space war where space assets are feeding stuff down to the front line. And then, you know, it's a war that's reminding us of time-tested realities that, you know, war consumes people, consumes resources, consumes munitions, and it does come down to industrial production at the end of the day, whether for defense or offense. And I think for air power advocates, right, it boils down to more air power, as opposed to all the nuanced elements that go into it. From your standpoint, what are some of the more nuanced lessons you're learning and that you think people ought to be paying attention to from this war? So, Vago, you actually picked up a number of them. So the way space is being used the role of Starlink, for example, in, uh, in enabling uh, command and control, I think is an important lesson. You also pointed out the use of low-cost solutions, unmanned aircraft, small unmanned aircraft, and their capabilities. I think in you know in previous years, we saw, frankly, especially in the United States, a dismissive attitude towards some of these things. You know, I'll, I'll tell you a quick little anecdote. I remember when I was Air Force Chief Scientist, we had a presentation from some lab folks. They built a small UAV, which had an explosive charge. It, it had a lot of autonomy at the time. It could fly to the target. It would detonate. And they presented it to senior leadership. And senior leadership looked at the lab guys and said, so what? You invented the slow-moving mortar round? And that was the attitude. And now right. we see these slow-moving mortar rounds. Actually, they work pretty well. But I actually want to step back. 
I think one of the important things we take away from what we're seeing in Ukraine is not to apply everything we're seeing in Ukraine to the scenarios that we worry about the most. Right. So right. so if you think about in the Indo-Pacific theater, you think about the challenges we face there. Think about a peer to peer competition. I think it would actually be a very different scenario and we'd be facing very different challenges than what we see in the Russia-Ukraine struggle. If we had to defend Taiwan, for example, what would that look like? And there are some right. some elements from Ukraine and Russia that we could capture, but there are also going to be very, very significant differences that, in that engagement. I think the point you made about supply chains, supplying capabilities, a general rule of thumb that we have seen when I was in the Pentagon, we would do our war games, and success on the battlefield often came down to depth of magazine. Right. So having that industrial base, having that magazine, and by the way, pursuing technological solutions that allow us to increase the depth of our magazine, I think become extremely important. I'll give you one example. You know, we often look at new technologies. Directed energy is one that we've been pursuing for a long time. And if you look at the early days of directed energy, it was kind of thought of as an alternative to a gun. All right. Instead of the gun, I got a laser. And you right. step back now with some decades of research behind us and, and testing and, and development, we realize, well, that's really quite dumb. If the gun does what the gun does well, you don't replace the gun with a directed energy system. But what the directed energy system does is it can give you a very, very deep magazine. You can fire shot after shot after shot as long as you have an electric supply. So it becomes a very effective defensive mechanism against low cost solutions. And I think we're going to see as a result of activities in Ukraine, I think we're going to see a significant increase in investment in that particular area as just one example. You mentioned uh, the Indo-Pacific yeah. and in terms of different types of needs, right? Uh, Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall makes the case, look, swarming is terrific, but I got to get the swarming to the other side of the Pacific, right? And so let's just understand the differences between what a Ukraine conflict holds for and the proximity and land borders and the challenge of Taiwan, which is a different challenge. From your standpoint, where is it that we've got to be putting some of the investment to learn the right lessons for what we need there, as opposed to merely applying the lessons we learned in, in Ukraine to Taiwan that may not be applicable? You know, I think, I think Frank's got it exactly right on that. We know that in future, we're going to be facing a swarm threat. And I'll give you my favorite example of that. And I know we're going to talk about hypersonics at one point, so I'll jump in. I've often had colleagues in the building say, we can defend against a hypersonic attack. And my response is always, okay, and can, you can shoot down one hypersonic weapon. Great. They're not going to shoot one. They're going to shoot a whole bunch of them, right? Your aircraft carrier is going to be attacked by not one, but half a dozen. And you might... You might even get five of those. If the six makes it through, you're going to have a really bad day. Right. I'm um, similarly getting our swarm attacks in. And it gets to the, the, the point that you're making. How, how is the Indo-Pacific different? And look, it's the vast ranges. It's being able to deliver our power at range. It's being able to penetrate into a very sophisticated uh, air defense system that we know the Chinese have in place. Ukraine is obviously much less sophisticated air defense system. So, you know, the Russians are going to have an easier time if we had to prosecute an engagement against a peer competitor like China with an integrated air defense system, we would really be challenged. So that pushes us to weapons that have long reach, that are survivable, that can penetrate and carry out effects at range. So that also speaks to autonomy as well. 
To that point, you are a technologist. You're terrific at setting out the thing that we need to build. What does it have to be? But until we get to those directed energy weapons, wars work as long as you have enough kinetic objects that you can shoot to either defend yourself or strike. Earlier in the week, Vago had Jerry McGinn, Bill Greenwald, and Steve Grunman on to talk about what has to happen to deliver more stuff, more objects, faster. Coming at it from the technology standpoint, what's the key to delivering stuff more quickly? Is it design and building that in from the beginning? Is it more flexible manufacturing? Is it leadership and just having a vision? What do we need to do in order to get the things out there until we can get to that infinitely deep magazine that we're all looking forward to? So, JJ, first of all, I agree with you completely that at the end of the day, you know, we still need to deliver kinetic options. I can't tell you how many briefings I have sat through where people talk about we're going to win this war by attacking left of launch. You know, left of launch means we do something that prevents them from launching. You know, we do a cyber attack, we do something, we turn off their grids, we shut down their weapons. And a lot of that depends on having a really incompetent opponent who hasn't thought through their security systems. So I agree that at the end of the day, it's about kinetic solutions and throwing metal. So to your point, to your question, it's not an either or. I think it's an all of the above. It starts with design, all right? Designing the weapons to their low cost. And I'm going to fall back on my favorite example, which is, you know, hypersonic systems. So, you know, hypersonics is a whole range of capabilities from medium range continent spanning weapons to smaller tactical systems. And the usual mantra against hypersonics is, well, these things are really expensive. And if you actually look at where a lot of the cost comes in, if we just design them from the standpoint of we're going to make them as low cost as possible, we could do a lot to reduce those factors. So I think I think design and designing for low cost has to be embedded. And that means we need to provide incentives to our designers, our developers, and our manufacturers to build things that are low cost. Next, supply chain. We need to be thinking about the supply chain that gets us to the numbers that we need to deliver that sort of mass. And it's... It's sometimes challenging to go from the supply chain you need in development to the supply chain that you need for delivery. I'll, if I can, I'll, I'll give you another example chosen from hypersonics. So right now, the department has a you know handful of programs underway. The Air Force has two programs. It's got the Hackam and it's got the Arrow hypersonic weapons. Those are right now being produced in single digit numbers. There are onesies and twosies because it's, it's a developmental program. It's, you know single weapons or weapon prototypes that are being tested, that's a very, very different need than production where you're producing hundreds and ultimately thousands of these systems. And the reality is you need to be producing in those numbers if you're going to have an, any sort of effect on a future conflict. So building that in from the beginning is important. And then there's a third piece, and, and I think you very correctly identified it, which is you need leadership need leadership to say, we're going to do this, we're going to move out quickly, and we're not going to take excuses for slowing down. And by the way, industry, you need to step up to the plate. And if you can't deliver on our timelines, then we'll look for other sources. And part of that leadership is also consistency of mission. One of the aspects we deal with in a democracy is we have new leadership coming in all the time. There's this tendency for new leadership to come in and decide to do things differently than the previous leadership, sometimes just because they're new leaders. You know, they did X, we're going to do Y. And every time we experience that, we set back our development, but we also set back our ability to build those supply chains 
build that procurement line that will deliver the weapons in the numbers and the low cost that we need. Now, let's take it to something a little more complicated. Are the principles the same if you're applying them to aircraft? We are building aircraft very slowly. Some of that is due to budget constraints. Some of that is due to supply chain or manpower constraints. Some of it is due to philosophical constraints about wanting to wait until the plane is ready. But are the principles the same to build something as complex as an aircraft as they are when you're building a single artillery round or projectile? You know, I think there are a lot of similarities. You know, there are, there are all these plots that show that the procurement time for new aircraft systems just keeps getting longer and longer and longer. And people love the site, you know, the F-35, for example. The reality is modern aircraft systems are incredibly sophisticated, incredibly complex systems. So it's not surprising that they take longer to deliver than previous generations. I smile because I used to joke when I, when I was Air Force Chief Scientist and said, if I had a dollar for every time someone walked in my office and said, we need to build more P-51s, we'll just build you know thousands of them and that'll be the mass that we deliver. And I'd laugh and say, yeah, and quoting from our mutual friend, Dave Deptula, they'll fall out of the sky like raindrops. So there's a cost in terms of dollars and time to the complexity that we deliver on modern aircraft systems. But then if you kind of step back, and there are times that I simply wonder if we've lost some capabilities in this country related to our ability to deliver systems. I see example after example of development programs where we're just missing the systems engineering that would go into developing these capabilities in a way that would allow us to deliver them on shorter timelines. And sometimes you see that in dumb mistakes being made, you know, in development, in testing. You kind of scratch your head. Where where are the systems trades being done? Why aren't people paying attention to if this doesn't work, then that doesn't happen. And if that doesn't happen, then I don't get this capability. That's actually a big concern to me. And it's that loss of systems engineering thinking that we see across the industry that I think has been one of these major factors. Let me ask you about Replicator. Dr. Hicks announced the effort a couple of months ago, harness non-traditional suppliers to mass produce unmanned systems. And indeed, there are lessons throughout history that commercial industry has swept to the rescue, right? I mean, Consolidated developed one of the finest bombers of World War II, the B-24, but it took Ford to really redesign the entire airplane for producibility. And it ended up being the most mass-produced allied aircraft at 18,000 units delivered by the end of the war. And sadly, only a handful survive. And I think only one or two are flying now. Give us your sense on Replicator. And then what novel design for production needs to look like? Because unfortunately now, we end up with things that are designed the way they are, in part because... We're not making them as open. We're not imposing those standards. We're vesting more authority in the contractor. And the contractor legitimately may have other interests than making it inexpensive or very easy to sustain, right? Uh, They may be incentivized to make it harder to support ultimately. I mean, what's the right approach both for replicator, but more broadly, how commercial approaches and smarter thinking can actually be a solution here for us, as as you've mentioned a couple of times? Yeah. Yeah. So- you know, p- part of the challenge in evaluating Replicator is there have actually been relatively few details shared about the effort other than, the, you know, the broad goal of 
you know, harnessing U.S. industry and delivering masks to oppose Chinese masks. To do it right, Replicator would be a, it would have to be a pretty significant effort, especially in the timescales. So I will say this, we as a country made some, some really poor decisions in terms of what we do with our UAVs. Basically, we handed the UAV industry over to other countries. And that was because of self-imposed limits on uh, which of our UAVs we would export. You know, UAVs had gotten book kept in the same category as missile systems, even though they're clearly not missiles. Correct, because but, of the MTCR. Uh, yes, exactly, right. exactly. So that really put a damper on U.S. development and U.S. innovation. So anything we can do to fix that, I think, is really important. DIU under Mike Brown had a very significant effort to try to address this and rebuild U.S. development, U.S. capability. Having said that, I'm not sure what problem exactly Replicator is trying to solve. And so it's it's a little bit difficult to answer the question. You know, the comments are that Replicator is going to try to match against Chinese mass. I'm not sure how you do that. I'm not sure how these systems deliver the capabilities for you know, deep penetration and survivability into the sorts of defended airspace that we would envision having to operate in an Indo-Pacific conflict. By the way, I can tell you, my, my friends in the services are also asking the question, how is Replicator being funded? And, you know, whenever you start a program like this, you've got to make those decisions. At the end of the day, it, it winds up being a zero-sum game. So if I'm going to do X, well, what why do I stop doing and how do I do those trades without knowing what we're trading off in order to accomplish Replicator? It's kind of hard to evaluate. Another big issue with Replicator is, you know, all right, so I'm going to build all these unmanned systems. How do I integrate them? I mean, how do they interact with each other? How do they interact with uh, existing platforms? It's a very, very complicated problem, not beyond their ability to solve. But that's a part of the problem that needs to be addressed. And again, without knowing if Replicator is addressing those issues, it's hard to evaluate. If folks want a colorful discussion of how we gave away a significant part of the UAV industrial base, I refer to last week's conversation with Dave Alexander from General Atomics. Yes, exactly. Exactly. We, the United States, should have controlled the world market in this. And because of a series of self-imposed limitations, we don't. Well, let's go to the other end of the speed spectrum. Uh, Purdue, with whom you are now affiliated, just yeah. unveiled a new hypersonics facility. And you were in charge of those efforts at DOD during the last administration when you were working, among others, with uh, Lieutenant General Neil Thurgood. Yes. who was the Army's and then the DOD's hypersonic missile boss, set the goal of fielding a battery of strategic hypersonic weapons by 2024. First, how are we doing on that? Because 2024 is pretty darn soon. And yeah. <laughs> how are we doing on the defense against hypersonics, which often gets overlooked when we're discussing that subject? So the Army, you know, timelines are slipping a little bit, but I, I got to tell you, when Neil Thurgood was on active duty, he was a force of nature. And, and one of the things I love about Neil is he was the, uh, the, uh, the ultimate, you tell him to take a hill, and by God, he was going to take that hill. And the hill he was going after was delivering a hypersonic capability. And I think he, more than almost any other leader in the department, was you know pushing not just the Army, but the entire department to deliver this capability quickly. One of the reasons that's so important, and I, and I tell anyone who will listen, 
we are already in a hypersonic race. And it's a race that we're, we're already losing. The Chinese have already deployed capabilities. We're still in development. And that development has frankly gotten a little bit rockier because we've had new leadership come in. We're seeing a de-emphasis of the importance of hypersonics in some circles. That to me is kind of troubling. So I'll step back, JJ. When I I came to the department in uh, late summer, early fall of 2019 as the director of defense research and engineering. And I was the guy in charge of modernization for the department. And at the time, I you know was reporting to Mike Griffin, who was the first undersecretary of defense for research and engineering. And Mike had made no bones about the fact that hypersonics was his number one priority. And we would sit in meetings and it was hypersonics was the number one priority. Now, shortly after I joined, we made microelectronics the number one priority. Hypersonics slipped to number two, but still it was a top priority for the department. And I had, you know, incredible leadership support. Secretary Esper, Mark Esper. I mean, he got it. He understood it. Dave Norquist, the deputy secretary. I mean, we, we would have discussions about why this is important and why we need to move forward. Every single service secretary, every single chief of staff, including the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, they all got it and they all appreciated the importance. And we were moving forward with a range of weapons and capabilities. I hate to say it, I'm, I'm really concerned because I'm not seeing that same commitment now. You know, the Air Force has the Hackam program and the Arrow program. I'm a really big fan of the Hackam program, by the way. You know, it's the air-breathing cruise missile. I think that's the killer app for hypersonics, no pun intended. The Arrow program, though, is not an either-or. All right, we need to have both the cruise missile and the rocket boost glide. The Arrow has actually proven very successful in demonstration, and yet the Air Force is still backing away from that program. And that, to me, is a really big concern, that we're backing away from programs at exactly the time that we need to be pressing forward. Same thing, I had the, the pleasure of visiting uh, NSWC Dahlgren uh, last week in Northern Virginia. Dahlgren is one of the, the Navy centers that's looking at everything from, you know, looking at a range of hypersonic systems. They were the center that developed the Navy railgun. And one of the things that they're working on is uh, capabilities that will allow the Navy to deploy hypersonic weapons on the DDG-1000 series, the Zumwalt class. And those have had a you know, kind of checkered history. They were built for one application. They were going to have rail guns, direct energy. And they finally settled in on the DDG-1000 being used as platforms for hypersonic weapons. And it's a really, really nice match, right? That's exactly the capability you want. A stealthy seaborne platform that's able to launch deep, penetrating hypersonic weapons. And now I'm hearing murmurings that, well, maybe we're going to delay that program. Maybe we'll slow it down. We're not so sure. That's exactly the wrong attitude. We need to be pressing forward with something like the DDG-1000. So, JJ, if I can, you, you asked about defense. And you're exactly right. Defense is incredibly important. Stepping back, a view from 65,000 feet, you know, why do you do hypersonics? You do hypersonics because it gives you a capability that is penetrating and that is survivable. Right? It's hard to stop a hypersonic weapon, but it's not impossible. It's just really difficult. It is not impossible to stop a hypersonic weapon. As we have seen in Ukraine, by the way, that's one of the lessons learned. The Russians have used hypersonic weapons, and they haven't been very effective, in, in part because the Russian weapons really suck, but also in part because the Russians haven't been using them very effectively. But you can stop them. That means we need to be investing on the defensive side just as we're investing in the offensive side. And they go hand in hand. That's another case where it's not an either or, right? If you're going to build a defensive capability, you need to understand the offensive capability. 
There are some efforts underway in the department. When I was in the building, we'd moved a lot of resources into the HBTSS, the Hypersonic Ballistic Tracking Satellite System. That's really important because that's the satellite system that lets you see and track a hypersonic threat. If you can't see it, you can't stop it. So that's step number one. But we really need to step up our game in developing defensive capabilities. And there won't be one silver bullet answer, right? We've got the glide phase interceptor program underway with MDA. That's important. That's the bullet with the bullet solution. But we need to be looking at other options to provide a layered defense against this hypersonic threat. What is the slowdown on the hypersonics attributed to? Is it a philosophical issue? Is it a financial issue? Because right now, budgetarily, we are pressed on pretty much all fronts, whether it's on manufacturing airplanes, whether it's manufacturing the munitions and the like that we need. I understand what Secretary Kendall's concern is, right? That air breathing is much, much better than you know very expensive ballistic missiles, even if they have their place. It's not a bulk weapon, and we do need bulk producible weapons. What's your sense in terms of what the hang-up or hang-ups are in this case? So I think it's a combination of factors. For one thing, yeah, I hear the, oh, we're, oh, we're creating a new arms race. No, no, no. Race is already on. <laughs> we're not right. creating that race. We're in that race whether we like it or not. The question is, are we going to win it or lose it? I, I would you point out to have- the audience, we already had forbearance. We de- developed the technology, led the world in it, and then in 2010 decided after some successful tests, we're just not going to do this. Exactly. Didn't stop we, anybody else from doing it. Yes, exactly right. We wrote all the reports how important this technology is going to be, and it's you know a critical element for the future battlefield. We communicated this to the whole world, and then we basically decided to step back and take our foot off the gas. So I actually, I'll, I'll give you a radical answer. I don't think the number one issue is money per se. And there's a fair amount of funding going into hypersonics. You can always use more, right? And, and for all my hypersonic friends out in the audience, don't, don't send me hate mail because I've said that. Because, you know, I agree. You always want sufficient funding to keep the programs. But I, I think there are a couple of things that we're facing. One is commitment of leadership. It really matters when you have people in leadership positions saying, this is an important capability. We need this. And we're going to press. And it's a priority. And when you don't have that, when you got the hemming and hawing, when you've got the, well, we're not so sure, and we've seen it used in Ukraine, and it's not working so well. When there's the hemming and hawing, philosophically, people tend to step back. So that's one challenge. Second challenge, we tend to be really risk averse. And that's still the case, right? So we'll do these demonstration programs, and something goes wrong, as will happen in a demonstration program or development program. We feel the need to spend a year examining our navels to figure out exactly what went wrong instead of getting right back in and and doing the development. I'll tell you another area that has really slowed us down, our test and evaluation infrastructure. We've allowed wind tunnels to atrophy. We've allowed our flight test capabilities to atrophy as well. And so we simply can't test and develop at the cadence that is required in order to deliver these capabilities in the timelines that, that we need. Wind tunnels, perfect example. You know, we, we would point out the Chinese were building wind tunnels at about the same rate that we were decommissioning wind tunnels. That trend is being reversed a bit. I want to give a shout out to the Test Resource Management Center. It's an organization led by a gentleman named uh, George Rumford in the Pentagon. He and his deputy, Jeff Wilson, have done a significant effort in trying to reinvigorate and reinvest in hypersonic test facilities. You mentioned I recently joined Purdue. So Purdue has made a huge investment of its own 
into hypersonic test facilities. We've got a, a couple of world-class wind tunnels being uh, built. One is a refurbished NASA tunnel. One is being built fresh. We've got a manufacturing facility that's going in. And that's because Purdue has heard the call. This is before I got there, by the way. Purdue has heard the call and realized that test and evaluation capabilities are critical with this. I'll also cite organizations outside the department that have heard the need for T&E capabilities, and they're stepping up to the plate. I advise a company called Stratolaunch. Uh, Stratolaunch is building a flight test capability because the leadership there heard that, you know, the department needs more flight test capability. An important factor now is going to be for the government to step in and utilize those capabilities. All right? When you've got a university like Purdue that's building wind tunnels, the government needs to say, okay, great. Thanks for building that. We're going to start using it now. Thank you for investing. We're going to build on your investment. Because if that doesn't happen, then the message that you've sent out is, well, okay, we told you it was important. You put your money on the table. And uh, on second thought, never mind. That's not going to carry very well. And that's going to have really serious negative implications for future generations. Mark, I know our time is short, but I want to ask one other element of this, which is the people part of it, right? I mean, you're at one of the nation's preeminent engineering universities. And time and again, we're finding that we don't have the technical skills, right? Whether it's spirit error systems workers or automobile workers, they're demanding premiums and they're getting the salary they want, the plus ups, uh, in part because the technical skill sets we need to build everything from commercial aircraft to automobiles are, are in demand. And this is a problem across the defense ecosystem. We don't have enough folks who work in shipyards. We don't have enough folks who are working on assembly lines. You know, one of the things that General Thurgood was trying to do was to build a hypersonic industrial base. So he was de developing the technology, but then developing the repeatability, the producibility, whether for glide bodies or motors or, or guidance systems or what have you. During the Cold War, this is an issue you and I have discussed before. Right after Sputnik, we gave tax breaks to create more engineers. We had more scholarship programs. We're doing some of that in the CHIPS Act, but not as much. What's the people power part of this, the education part of it? But not everybody needs to go to MIT and Purdue, right? At the end of the day, we also need trained production workforce and technical skills. What do we need to be doing on that front by way of policy and strategy that we're not, because time and again, it's not just a supply chain bottleneck. It's we don't have people who can repair nuclear ships fast enough. There's an infrastructure piece to that, but then there's the people piece of it. Yes. So, Vaga, you've hit on one of my very, very favorite themes, which is workforce development. And you were exactly right. At the end of the day, if we don't have the people to do this, <laughs> We're screwed. So I would say, I think- That's a great a very... technical term, by the way. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. So a lot of people worry about the STEM pipeline. And I, I think we need to be, we, we do need to worry about the STEM pipeline. But I actually tend to worry more about a piece of the STEM pipeline. And that is the STEM pipeline that will support national defense, right? In this nation, we have lots of brilliant young minds who want to work on various aspects of, you know, science and engineering. That's wonderful. What I want to make sure is that, they are working on the science and engineering that supports national security. All right, so how do you do that? I think there are a number of things that you can do. It starts with leadership. I'm gonna do a little bit of shameless self-promotion here. At Purdue University, we've got leadership at the very top of the, the university, our, our president, Meng Chen, he will freely say national security is the number one priority for the university. It's the number one priority in research. It's the number one priority when we do education. 
We've got a wonderful relationship with DOD facilities like the NSWC Crane Facility in Southern Indiana. So part of it comes down to universities stepping up the plate and saying, this is important. And if you're going to do a STEM career, think about working with in the national security field. It's important. It's rewarding. It's critical to our national defense. But then there are also efforts and programs that are being developed. I'll give you one example that I love. And again, this is going to be a little bit of shameless self-promotion again. So Purdue is part of something called the DCTC, the Defense Civilian Training Corps. It's a new program that was started by the Pentagon. The idea is to create a a ROTC-like program for civilians who would work in the DOD. So you get a cadre of young folks who from you know, their undergraduate days are saying, yes, I want to work in the DOD. I want to support national security. And you give them an educational program that directs their careers towards those career goals. You know, it's a lot of small efforts, but you add up all those small efforts and you get to a very significant pool. One of the programs that I'm really going to point to that I think has been important, and, and I'm going to circle back to my favorite subject of hypersonics. So when I was in the building, we created the Joint Hypersonic Transition Office, the JHTO. And you and I have talked about this before. Part of the JHTO was a university consortium, the University Consortium for Applied Hypersonics. Uh, We envisioned it when we first started that we'd maybe have a handful of universities and a couple of industry partners. That consortium now has more than 100 universities, over 100 industrial partners. And what's important about that is every university that takes part in that consortium has agreed up front that they're going to adhere to certain restrictions, certain rules, Projects will undergo some security review. Personnel working on those projects will undergo some review. And those universities willingly step up to the plate. So that's a long list of universities. includes Purdue and Texas A&M is leading the effort, University of Arizona, Arizona State, University of Illinois. The leading universities in our nation saying, yes, national security is important. That message gets communicated to their students. They get their students working on these problems. And that's just one step in helping to build this STEM pipeline. National security is the top priority at Purdue University, except when they're playing Illinois. Dr. Mark (laughs) Lewis is CEO of the Purdue Applied Research Institute. He's a friend of the show. Mark, terrific to have you back with us. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure to be on. Thanks so much for listening to the Air Power podcast. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, hey, please tell a friend. Special thanks to GE Aerospace for powering the whole flight. We'll be back next week.